Is everybody ready? Let's get rolling. This is The Big Show on 97.5, 1280 The Zone in the Zone Sports Network. Big Show, Gordon Monson, Jake Scott, 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Thank you very much for making us a part of your day. We're going to talk to David Locke coming up here momentarily. His interview brought to you each and every week by our good friends at the Murdoch Auto team. We'll get David's thoughts on uh, the Jazz final game against the Spurs, as well as uh, their, uh, I guess, positioning going into the playoffs. Uh, in fact, let's uh, go ahead and jump on out to the T-Mobile special guest line. T-Mobile and Sprint are coming together to build the best wireless company around. Visit T-Mobile.com for online services and local store availability. Uh, joining us now, the radio voice of the Utah Jazz, David Locke. David, hello. How are you, Jake Scott? I'm terrific, man. Uh, you know, it's kind of kind of a bummer we're losing college football. Certainly bummed about that. But, you know, in, not so in, good. in 2020 world, I'm doing all right. All right. So what do you think is going to happen here? If the Big 12 and the SEC play, do you think that Big 10 teams are going to revolt? Nebraska is going to go join the Big 12? Do you, like, they all get one non-conference game and it's all Nebraska? Do you think multiple teams leave their conferences and go play on their own? Based on what I've read, uh, David, uh, the Big 10 is essentially telling Nebraska to shut up. Yeah, and Ohio State's AD uh, backed off of that real quick uh, today, uh, David. But I'll, I'll tell you what I could see. I could see all of uh, the Big Ten players fleeing to the SEC, ACC, and Big 12. Yeah, actually, one of uh, the Locked On podcast today did a really kind of interesting thing. He went through, like, every single potential transfer and, uh, um, like, how they fit and where their best spots were. And it was pretty wild. <laughs> I was like, oh, my goodness gracious. Doing all the work for him, huh? Yeah, it was crazy. It was good, creative, good show. Um, but it's, you know, told you kind of where we are with um, with everything. I mean, I guess it really depends on how much control the presidents have amongst each other, right? Like, that's the question. So does, does a president decide I'm done with this conference and I'm willing to let my football team go and the athletic director go? But if they, if they don't, if the presidents don't have that kind of control, that or the pre, you know, no AD or Scott Frost can go do it without the president saying it's okay without losing their jobs. Yeah, this will be interesting to watch though, David, because if if half the country's not playing and half of it is, or whatever the percentage is, man, those conferences that are playing, those guys better stay healthy, or it could turn into a mess. Right. Yeah. No. I mean that you you miss on this. Either way, it's going to be a mess, right? Like if they get through it without any problem, and everyone one, then everyone says, "What the heck did you do wrong?" Right? Um, and um, if they if they don't get through, you know, if the SEC and Big Twelve don't get through and have a bunch of problems, then then that's a pretty big that's a pretty big problem. David, let's uh, switch gears a little bit to basketball. Uh, Houston lost to Indiana today, locking them into the 4-5 series. So I guess my question for you is if the Jazz work real hard and stay focused, could they go out and lose one tomorrow? You know, I I, I mean, I think the Jazz have been pretty clear. The goal here is to be uh, healthy when this is done, right? So they gave 
came off that double overtime game and gave Donovan the rest and played guys limited minutes. And now, you know, Mike and Rudy aren't going to go tomorrow. So I, I think the focus is, you know, completely on being healthy. I, I, I don't know what the right matchup is. Um, I mean, the, the Clippers are no longer a possibility, which in some way, in some weird ways, I actually thought the Clippers, like statistically I did today, I'm locked on jazz, the nine games against Denver, LA and Houston. And, uh, well, actually, I take it back. That's not true. We could still be six and play the Clippers. So that's a possibility still. Like, in some ways, the Clippers look like, the you know, statistically the team that we've given the most trouble to. They've had bad, two terrible shooting games against us. Um, we just can't stop the Rockets. The Rockets, we've played them three times this year. Their offensive rating is over 120 in all three games. Um, but, you know what, Denver's great. Like, um, I, I'm probably in the, like, oh, let's go play Denver camp, but like I kind of am embarrassed by it because one, they finished ahead of us each of the last two years. So who are we to say we want to play them? Two, Jokic is amazing and has put it on Rudy twice in pretty substantial fashion. And you know what they do? They win. Like they just win. Give them credit. They're 19 and 16 when they trail at the half this year. That's incredible. So part of me feels like it's kind of an absurd thing to to be talking about. Like oh well. I want Denver, but we just can't stop Houston. We really, really have a hard time stopping Houston. And against Denver, we get good looks offensively. So it leads, you know, I think that there's a script by which if you can go get 43s, maybe you hit 20 of them and you win a game. So, David, let me flip that question around from who the Jazz want to play to do other teams want to play the Jazz? Well, let me ask you a question. If we had a draft tomorrow, so instead of doing the playoffs the way we do them, the Lakers got the first pick. I know they're not taking the Blazers, who they're going to end up with. So who are they taking? I think without Bogdanovich, they might take the Jazz. Right. I mean, I think Utah is everyone's choice at this point. Your superstar is 23 offensively. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, and Lu- you know, Lucas puts more fear in your heart than – Donovan and Rudy does do right now. Um, so I'd have to say that that makes sense to me. That, um, you know, I haven't really figured out what the massive tank we could see for someone trying to get to Utah. Um, if Oklahoma City wins today, then six is set as Utah, and the Laker, the Clippers in Denver would have an hour to react with both of them trying to lose to get to us? <laughs> Madness, David. We thought and last if, year was crazy. I know I said this to you the other day, but we thought last year was nuts. And if that was really what they were doing, which I don't know that they are, but let's say that is what they're doing just for the fun of it, then Denver would have to make sure that they lose again to Toronto to make sure that they're three, not two. Uh at one thirty Eastern at eleven thirty on the fourteenth, right? So that's like we don't we know our mat. If the Clippers beat Denver tonight, then I think we know our matchups, right? I think so. Does that seem right? I think so. If the Clippers beat Denver today, then Denver slides to three. Clippers are at two and. Then the only question is whether the Jazz are six or the Jazz are, f- are five. Right. So, so flipping the question back around again, 
If, let's say, the Jazz are playing their young players heavy minutes tomorrow against the Spurs, and the Spurs should be motivated to want to win that game. But no, what? not true. The Spurs could be eliminated by the time we tip off tomorrow. Oh. Hmm. Okay, so so that brings up all kinds of complications. What if the Jazz, with their young players, are up substantially heading into the fourth quarter in that game? What happens then? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I mean, frankly, Russell Westbrook is injured, and P.J. Tucker grabbed his thumb today. Like, so maybe you just win and go be the fifth and let Oklahoma City decide the next day. See, I think Houston, David, I think Houston might be the better matchup for the Jazz anyway because I'm not convinced that P.J. Tucker can play a whole series against uh, uh, against Rudy Gobert. And I like the matchup of Rudy on Russell Westbrook. I thought that actually kind of worked earlier in the year. If given a series to see how that would work, I like it. Um, yeah, I think um... – I do like it because I think it lures Russell into taking 8 million shots. Right. Um, what I don't like is that our defensive rating against them has been a 120 in every game. So the ideas sound, the evidence not so much. The evidence is we just can't stop them. Like, mm. And we're not, like, it, you know, we have to understand who we are now, right? So we're an offensive team. Um, we, you know, we once were a defensive team. Um but we're an offensive team now. And our margin for success um, against the defense, against those kind of teams, is pretty slim defensively. Um, so it's hard for me. I mean, what, yeah, I don't, I'm trying to look it up right now and see where our defensive nights, um, ironically enough, I, I don't have everything updated because um, I can't remember my password for, during the, <laughs> um, on some data here that I usually get, and I'm having a hard time getting it from the league. So our defense. This is only through um, the Detroit game, uh, March seventh. Um, our defensive performance against the Rockets on January twenty seventh was our forty fifth ranked defensive performance of the year. The neck um, out of I think sixty two games is what we had right, right about then. Um, so that's not. Then our next performance against them um, was like a four was forty three. Um, and then I think, and I'm trying to find our third performance against them. So, you know, it's not like terrible. Um, here's our next performance was our 52nd defensive performance. So, you know, it's not dreadful, but it's definitely on our bottom half of defensive performances. David, a lot of people have been talking about some of the younger players and whether they'll play a role for the Jazz at some point. But what impressed me in the last couple of games has been that Guys like Jordan Clarkson and George Niang have been coming around. Guys who the Jazz are going to have to depend on in order to be that offensive team that you were talking about. What do you make? Do you think they're in good shape, especially from three-point range now? So my viewpoint on the bubble is the following. The, the Jazz were going in the bubble with probably, if I do this right, four goals in mind. Okay, One is they had to come up with a brand-new lineup, rotation, by which to play without Boyan Bogdanovich, right? Then, and they did that. The starting lineup has been great. Then the second one was to change the way they play. Play faster, take earlier, quicker threes, and get more threes up. I think they've done that. Three was to go create some sort of bench that's got to be rebuilt because you're trying to find 31 minutes 
of Boyan Bogdanovich that don't exist. That has not been particularly successful. Um, it's been more successful recently, and certainly, you know, George Niang started three of 26 from three, and Jordan Clarkson didn't shoot well early, so that wasn't great. But Emmanuel Moody hasn't played particularly well. Um, so, you know, that one probably still a work in progress. And then number four is they had a unique opportunity to go get close to a, somewhere between 60 and 100 minutes of playing time against real NBA players in a real NBA setting for Mia Oney, Jarrell Brantley, um, Rajon Tucker, and I guess Justin Wright Foreman. And you just don't get that. You don't get that in the G League, you don't get that in the Summer League, and you don't get that in preseason. Um, it's, if you actually think about it, if you take a rookie that's not a top-10 pick, the, the feeling in the league is that you have success. If you can get 1,200 minutes out for development, you need 1,200, then 1,800, then 2,400. That's the, that's the kind of goal of development in the first three years. Okay, we're going to get like 10% of that. It's not great, but it's 10% for second-round draft picks in a span of two weeks. It's an incredible thing for the Jazz to be able to get these minutes for One, Tucker, Brantley, and Wright Foreman. And I think that that actually will help solve the other problem because while Moutier has not played great, I do think One has shown he can play as the fifth best player on the floor and have the appropriate impact. Which of those young guys has impressed you the most? Mia One's, this is a weird statement, maybe i got to clarify it if it doesn't make sense. Mia One's ability to be the fifth best player on the floor is really impressive to me. Hmm. And so here's what I mean by that. Terrell Brantley, Justin Wright Foreman, Rajon Tucker, and Mia One have always been the best player on any team they've ever played on. And what they want to do is, when they, what their natural instinct is, is to play with the ball in their hands and try to make plays all the time. When they move to the NBA, they have to narrow focus their skills and be willing to be make the play for everybody else and be the fifth best player on the floor. So Mia One has played and been willing to play hard defensively without taking a shot for an extended period of time. He's played well and move the basketball the extra pass to somebody else rather than thinking about his own shot. And then when the other team has left him wide open and they've treated him like he's the fifth best player on the floor and it's abundantly obvious if he doesn't take a shot, it's a record scratch, he's taken the shot and he's knocked him down with some ability. Um, so he has been the most impressive to me and I think can actually play playoff minutes and he's fearless and you know his like growth issue is controlling his competitiveness, not getting competitive. Jarrell Brantley has a really unique skill set. I am not entirely sure how it all fits together, um, but I think it's pretty awesome. Like, he's actually a natural distributor rather than a nat- you know, a scorer. He's a willing passer. He's got pretty good ball handling skills. Um, I almost wonder whether he could be like a bench version of Draymond Green where he's playing the five but running the offense and defensively plays the five because he's so big. I don't know if he can rebound well enough and rebound out of his area for it, and that would take some time to do that. Um, So I'm not entirely sure where he fits, but I've seen some uniqueness to his skill. He's obviously got to make some shots. David Locke with us here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. David, what did you think about the rules surrounding guests coming into the bubble, and did you feel bad for the poor lawyer who had to uh, write out no random hookups in the legalese? Um, you might um, have to give me more information because I haven't seen this and I did not know about the random hookup line. Um, <laughs> well, it, so, it wasn't put quite that uh, that plainly. Uh, they basically had to say that you have to have known and had uh, a relationship with the guest 
before they uh, are eligible to come in? So this Tinder does not count as a known in relationship. Is what you're <laughs> yeah, I don't think so, but I don't know how you prove that actually. Um, I think this is the most important. So the NBA has proven. Uh, let me see how, I'm a, how what I'm trying to go to here. So I think there's a bunch of really, really interesting things going on in the sports world from like a big wide range so that we have like five different models all taking place right now. Like give the MLS credit. They just finished their season yesterday, right? Give give the women's soccer, they finished theirs credit. So there's some like mechanism where they those two leagues got it done. The NBA on a higher, more high profile level is proven the bubble. The the next stage of the bubble in the in the most restrictive of models is the ability to bring in friends and family. And why I think it's so important is the next year in the NBA, if they're going to play, they're either going to have to do it in bubbles where friends and family come in, or they're going to have to follow the Major League Baseball model, and that's not working very well. So, you know, or you're doing and – and I don't know that socially distanced crowds actually have an impact on whether the players get the virus or not. Um I'm not, you know, I'm not convinced. Of, I'm not convinced it does. So I, that's a separate discussion. But you're either going to play next year in some sort of bubble again, or you're going to end up playing in with friends and family, or you're going to end up playing where you're traveling from city to city with or without fans. And so I think having this other option of where you bring families in and it works would be super important. David, I want to ask. That's a really long-winded answer. I apologize. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Good. It's good. I have a, a a question to be asked. Uh, how to say tenderly? Do you think that the NBA bubble has been a bubble? Do Do you think there have been interactions between players and outsiders uh, on the quiet? No. But I don't know. I don't have any idea. But no, I don't. There you go, Gordon. I think these guys take it really seriously. And I think when the first report came out that there were no positive tests, it changed everything. And I would say talking to people, I talk to someone in the bubble every day. That's kind of my, like, trying to stay in touch with people. Generally try to talk to someone today. I haven't today. But um, the mood changed after that first test came out. Guys were tired and feeling restricted and feeling a little overwhelmed and, um you know, there wasn't, they weren't grumbling, but there was just a lot of talk about like the amount of stuff that was going on. Um, and the minute that first report came out that all the, everybody was negative, the entire talk changed to, gosh, I must feel bad about being here. We're so much safer than everyone else. We have to do a lot of things, but boy, it's crazy. Wow, I went to the gym and worked out today. You know, like those kind of things, like suddenly it was, it changed the mood. So, I think everyone feels pretty good about it. It is impressive. I will say that. I mean, yeah, I think this next stage is really, really important. You know, can you bring people in and out of the bubble, testing them in in a manner and having them take it serious enough and everybody that you can maintain the negative tests. And I mean, what gets really interesting here is, you know, you're into the second round of playoffs and you bring somebody in and you get, you just cost your team, might cost your team the title. Right. I mean, if you make it into the final four, you're you got a real chance to win the title. Hmm. You're 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 one 
one or two hot shooting nights away from winning a series and one or two you know sprained ankle away from making it to the finals, even if you're an underdog. David, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. And uh, I have a I, I have a question for you. Oh, all right. So I've seen the take that we let our college football players deal with CTE and we won't let them deal with COVID. Fair or unfair? Uh, yeah, I think there's some fairness to that. Do you disagree? Oh, I don't know. I just... No, here, here's my thing, David. I, I think if you're going to, if, if universities are going to prioritize the health of their athletes, this would be the first time. And I'm not convinced that this is actually a decision to, uh, in the best interests of the health of college athletes. Um, so I would add on to that with this. If it's the first time something happens, then that's probably not the reason. Okay. Does that make well, sense? Is it, is it really the first time? Well, I don't know. If we believe, if it is the first time that that decision's been made for that reason, then that's not the reason. Then there's another reason. It's a good rule to live by. Yeah. Well, the liability definitely is part of it. Well, then that's the, then that's the issue. I just wish people would be honest about it, David. You know, if it is liability, which I, uh, I believe that that is, is playing a role, I also think they're kind of trying to silence speech, too, but that's a different thing. Right. Uh, but if, if it is the liability, political and financial, just have the stones to say that then. Don't hide behind this, but, oh, it's in the best health interest of the, of the football players. Maybe it's not categorical like that. Maybe it's both. Maybe they do care about because we're in a we're in a pandemic here. So you got that going, and then you have the liability issue, and those two things combined make it. I will uh, I will say this. I was, and you can take this for whatever it is. I was on a call with the Stanford AD um, a long time ago. Like I think I might text you guys. Like this was let's see, and this was early on because we were. I was in St. George for. I mean, this is April maybe. Um, and he said, it was interesting. I was on a call with Mark Harlan and with Brendan Muir on the same day. And like, you know, Zoom call, not like just for me. Mark Harlan was, you know, very optimistic. We're going to play. We're going to move forward to that. We've you know, got under control in our state. Brendan Muir, who's Stanford's AD and find their elitist and holier than thou, just simply said, I am not sure that I will ever be comfortable putting my athletes on a playing field for TV dollars if it's not safe enough for fans to be in the crowd. Hmm. Just such a bad look. It's a bad and look. I think, Sorry, go ahead. I think there might be enough people, presidents of universities, who understand this, who said, hey, we're not rolling 19, 20, and 21-year-old kids out for risk, we don't know, on something as obvious as their quest for TV, our quest for TV dollars. So send them home where they'll be at greater risk. Well, yeah. I mean, if you buy that thinking, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I buy that. I, I, you know, Tom Osborne told us that uh, Lawrence Phillips was much better off if he was with a football team and we saw how that worked out. So uh, I'm not sure I'll ever buy a football coach ever telling me that. David, I'm with you on your opinion on that, by the way. I agree with you. Uh, I think if uh, you're testing them regularly alone, 
I think that that is more uh, uh, safety than they're going to get without football. Yeah, I think you can actually make a strong argument that the safest place in relation to COVID-19 right now is BYU's football facility. In this uh, state, well, I mean, in this state. I mean, so, yeah. Somebody said to me the other day, Disneyland made the happiest place on earth, and now they've made Disney made the happiest place on earth, and now they've made the safest place on earth. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, I do, I do buy. If you're, I mean, if you're doing what everybody's always said we should do, which is testing right. regularly, contact tracing, like all the things they've said we should do, yeah, you can. That gets safe. So if we're if we were going to do that in all of our collegiate environments, then that would be safer than having them in an environment where that's not taking place. But then how's that worked out for Major League Baseball? I am still totally unclear on what Major League Baseball is doing testing-wise. Can somebody answer this question for me? <laughs> Not at the moment. And, and David, we are, uh, we're really up against it. we got to run, man. Thank you, though. And I appreciate the, yeah. the critical conversation there at the end. I think that stuff's important. Okay. All, All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks, buddy. All right. Coming up next, Josh Parcell, our college football insider. Stay tuned. Big Show 97.5 and 1280 The Zone.